Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in him. Today is part one of a two-part sermon uh, that we're going to be uh, looking at here from verses 13 to 15. So as always, if you are here today, you are committing yourself to come back next week to hear the end of it. Just understand that in advance. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 15, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please now, let's go to this slide. Look at verse 1. Paul writes, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace." For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let's pray. Father, we come now and we ask your blessing on this time and your word. Help us to understand it, Lord Spirit. Please speak to us and convict us of perhaps our own wrong motivations and some of the things that we do, the decisions we make. I pray, Lord, that we will not be the type of people who take the freedom that we have in Christ and use it for sinful ends. Guard us from this danger, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, back to my uh, anniversary for just a moment. Over the past 10 years, I have studied a lot of Scripture. In fact, I've studied more Scripture than, quite frankly, I can remember. Uh, it seems like on a lot of different points, I've had the repeated experience where someone will come to me and be like, hey, you remember several years ago you preached this? And I'm like, no, I don't. I don't remember that at all. I've studied too many things and preached too many sermons at this point to remember what I said on any particular sermon. Most of the time, at least not off the top of my head, maybe if I sat down and looked at it a little bit, I might remember what I had learned and what I had studied. But, but off the top of my head, no. But, but that doesn't mean that there aren't certain passages or certain texts of Scripture that I have studied that have impacted me in such a way that I do continually remember them and think about them very vividly. And as I was thinking this week back over the past 10 years and asking myself which out of those many passages of Scripture that I've studied, which, which one in particular has had the most and probably deepest impact on my life, not talking about in a single moment necessarily, but over over time, 
And the answer would have to be hands down, and if you know me well, it may not surprise you, John 13, verses 34 and 35. Now, if you've been at Cornerstone over the past 10 years, you know that I have never preached uh, through John's gospel. I preached through his first letter, preached through Mark's gospel, but never that particular gospel. And However, that, that's the passage. Out of all the things I've studied that has had the biggest impact in my life over time, if you're not familiar with it, I'm going to show it to you. But first, let me give you just a little context. John 13 is the pivot point in John's gospel. Chapters 1 through 12 are just kind of dealing with Jesus' ministry uh, and life over that time period. But when you get to chapter 13, you turn a corner and you begin heading directly for the cross. Uh, It opens, uh, excuse me, of the first uh, of the four gospels, John uh, gives the most detail about that time period. He opens in chapter 13 on the Last Supper, for example, and of the four Gospels, no one gives as much detail about the conversations or the events that occurred about the Last Supper. I mean, you're talking John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 all occur from the moment the the Last Supper begins up until the arrest of Jesus. So that's a A lot of information, five chapters worth, about a very small period of time, maybe just a few hours. But but back to John 13 in particular, the story begins with Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And after this, Jesus announces that one of them will betray him. They say, who? He says, it's the person to whom I dip this morsel of bread and give it to them. So he does that. He dips the bread and he hands it to Judas Iscariot and says to him, what you're about to do, go out and do quickly. Judas then leaves, and yet somehow John reports that nobody at the table understood that Judas was there for the betrayer. They thought that Jesus was telling him to go buy something or to go give money to the poor because he was the treasurer of the group. And just on a side note, that to me is an indication of the truthfulness of Scripture because if John was making the story up, he would certainly have painted himself and the others in a better light than this because they all look stupid, not understanding that he is, in fact, the, uh, the betrayer. Whatever, this is the context. Uh, Judas has been revealed to be the betrayer. He's just left the upper room moments ago, and now we read these words. When he had gone out, and you can almost hear the door latching behind him as you read that. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also said to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, let's just think back through that for just a moment. Recognize that when he says the word now, here in verse 31, now is the Son of Man glorified, that I think he sees this as being the moment. Like this is the beginning in Jesus' mind of the end. Because from the moment that door closed and he turned and looked at the rest of the disciples, everything from this point on is going to take him to the cross. So this is the beginning of the end, and our Lord knew it. Next, he tells them that he's about to leave them. Uh, If you were to keep reading in the text, you would see that this is the part of what Jesus says here that really bothers the disciples, Peter in particular. He, He hears those words and he's like, Lord, what do you mean you're going somewhere I can't go? Where are you going? I would go anywhere with you. I'd even die for you. And it's those comments that he makes starting in verse 36 that ultimately ultimately lead to Jesus telling him, no, you're going to deny me three times before the night is over. So so this is the 
the part that Peter focuses on, maybe the others as well, but it is not Jesus' focus because what Jesus is focused on is found in verses 34 and 35 when he gives them what he calls a new commandment to love one another. But if you know anything about the scriptures, you know that this commandment is not really new, not in and of itself perhaps, uh, the Mosaic law commanded God's people to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Uh, it also commanded them to love their neighbors. Leviticus 19:18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In fact, it was these two commands of Jesus. We just read this a moment ago, right? Ilya said it, uh, that, that he points to when he's approached and said, what's the, what's the greatest commandment? You know, this is something the scribes have debated for years and years and years. What's the greatest commandment? And he points to these two as saying they're, uh, the first one's love the Lord your God, the second one love your neighbor as yourself. So, you know, how then can Jesus say that this is a new command? Well, notice in verse 34, he gives a new standard of love, right? It's not just simply love in general. It's love as I have loved you. So I am the standard now of love, Jesus says to them. Uh, and his love was just uh, exemplified before them when he, their Lord and God, got down on his hands and knees and washed their feet, something that would normally have been reserved for a slave, and it's going to be exemplified in even a fuller and truer way in just a few hours when he dies on the cross for their sins. So in this sense, it's new, but notice particularly the application of the command in verse 40, uh, 35. This thing is so important so vital to Jesus that he makes it, love, the distinguishing mark of all true disciples. This is it. You want to know what a true disciple looks like? This is the thing you look for. You look for love. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And notice that it's not just an internal mark, it's an external mark, meaning people outside of the church should be looking in on the relationships that we have with one another, and they should go, man, those people clearly love one another. They must belong to Jesus. Like, that's what the unbelieving world should be thinking. I'm not talking just about Christians. I'm talking about the unbelieving world should be looking in on us and seeing whether or not we are real disciples of Jesus Christ. And this is why this passage has impacted me so much. And again, just, you know, remember the context. Jesus is about to die. He knows it now. Now is the Son of Man glorified. He knows that he is down to ours. So everything he says at this point is important. I mean, not that all his other things weren't, but you get the point. Like it's, This is like crunch time. This is game time. We're here. I only got a few things I can say to you now, so you better listen carefully because this is like what you really need to understand. And so my assumption is whatever he says carries a tremendous amount of weight and significance. So is it not amazing that out of all the things he could have said at this point, right? This is the moment, his lead-off comment. Out of all the things he could have said, this is what he said. He wants them to understand what a true disciple looks like. They just watched Judas leave the room. They're going to realize in just a few more hours that he was not a true disciple. They're going to finally get it. They didn't get it when he left, but they'll get it then. So what does a, a true disciple look like? Well, according to Jesus, it's... A, they, there's a kind of person who is marked by Christ-like love of the brethren. And the question I've asked over time, and if you've been around, you've heard this little spiel before, um, is that what you would have picked? 
If I had to ask you, prior to hearing all of this, what is the mark of true Christian discipleship? What, what thing, what proof, what evidence would you look for if I asked you to look at someone's life and tell me whether or not they are a genuine believer, what would you have answered prior to this point? Well, uh, you might want to, perhaps, I just thought of some of the more common one. You might want to look at their church attendance, right? Do they go to church? How often do they go to church? Where do they go to church? What kind of church is it? Uh, you might want to ask about their theology. What do they believe? Is it sound? Is it biblical? You might want to ask about their devotional life. Do they read the Bible? Do they pray? Do they have a life marked by worship? You might want to ask about their service. Do they share the gospel with unbelievers? Are they active in ministry, and what kind of ministry is it? I mean, uh, maybe it's just my opinion, but those seem to be the types of things that we typically look for when we are looking at someone's life, trying to figure out whether or not we think those people are true believers. And yet Jesus, in the moment when he could have given any of those things as being the mark of true disciples, takes a pass. He doesn't give any of them. Not a one. He doesn't say, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you go to church, if you read your Bible, if you share the gospel. He could have said those things, right? He could have, yes, okay? He doesn't say those things. He says, by this, all people will know, if you love one another as I have loved you. So love, love, that's the distinguishing mark of true, genuine Christianity. And this ultimately is why I think Jesus calls this here a new commandment because it's for a new age, one that's about to dawn, something that's about to change because of his death. It will characterize those who truly belong to him. Now, that was like a little mini sermon, uh, but that was just introduction and a very long one to that. I apologize. Uh, I did all of that to say this. Once I saw that, once I understood the significance of that particular comment, particularly the one there in verse 35, that by this everyone would know that you're my disciple, um, it changed the way I read the New Testament. Because all of a sudden, I began seeing love everywhere, which is already, was already there, but it began to stand out to me how many times the New Testament writers talk about love. And I began interpreting those times in light of the passage that we just looked at. And that is true of our passage this morning here in verses 13 to 15. As you can see here in verse 13, Paul is still focused on the topic of freedom. He wants them to live out the freedom that they have in Jesus Christ. In verses 2 through 12, which we looked at last week, he was doing that same thing except he was focused in on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for salvation. He did not want them in any way to walk away from the freedom that was theirs through Christ alone. Don't go back to the law. Don't try to find your acceptance before God or to live acceptably before God through that. Stay with Christ. Stay with the freedom that you have there. Well, now starting here in verse 13, he begins moving towards the application of freedom uh, in terms of how we live. That's what he wants to focus on now. And I want us to begin thinking through this uh, verse by focusing on the clarification that he seems to provide for us here in verse 13. He begins by affirming what he's already said. You were called to freedom, brothers. In other words, you're free, all right? You really are free. This is what you have in Christ. You should now live out that freedom. And this has been, up to this point, 
focused on responding to the danger that the Galatians were in because of these false teachers who had approached them here in Galatia who were calling them to live under the Old Testament law. He's been like, all up to this point, he's been stay away from that. Live in the freedom that's yours in Christ. But now you see that there's a problem that at least is possibly coming to Paul's mind as he's been talking so much about freedom. The problem isn't with the biblical concept of freedom itself. The problem is with us, or maybe I should say it more uh, accurately, the problem is in us. Because unfortunately, when some people begin talking about and trying to live out the freedom that is genuinely theirs in Christ, they begin to take that freedom too far and or they begin to apply it in the wrong directions. And this seems to be the clarification that Paul wants to make here in verse 13. You were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Now, let's just stop and make sure that we understand his concern here. First, let's focus very briefly on the word flesh. What is he Excuse me, what is he talking about here when he uses the word flesh? Does he mean our, our physical flesh, as in like our, our skin and our tissue and bone and muscle? Is that what he's talking about here? Well, uh, no, not really. Um, he's not referring to the matter, I'm talking about the atoms and molecules that make up our physical bodies per se. He is referring to that piece of us deep down inside that does not want to submit itself to God or to his rule and reign. We could call it our sin nature, something we are born with, which is tied to this body of flesh, but is not, again, not physically in it. In other words, if that was the case and I cut off my fingertip here, I'd have been a little less sinful than I was the day before, right? I, I got rid of a fractional part of my sinfulness. It's not, it doesn't work exactly like that. It's something deeper than that. But the common way that the New Testament refers to this piece of us is with the word flesh. According to the New Testament writers, our flesh stands in opposition to God. Romans 8, verses 7 through 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The flesh is completely against God. A, a chapter prior to that, Romans 7, verse 18, Paul says again, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. I look inside and I see nothing good, only sin there. Uh, if you look just ahead here in Galatians 5 to verse 19, you're going to see the kinds of things that the flesh pursues. And you can look at that list and recognize these are sinful, these are evil, and these are wrong. So, so this flesh, also called sin nature, also called the old man, all of these terms are referring to this piece of us that, like our first parents, want to rebel against God and reject his rule and reign in our lives. This is what he means by the flesh. Second, and as you can see, the concern here is that living in freedom could uh, become an opportunity for someone to go out and indulge the flesh. Now, if it's not clear why this would be a concern or a temptation, particularly in Paul's context. Let's just try to think about this for a moment from a Jewish perspective. In Jewish thought and practice, uh, based on what you know from our study of Galatians so far, how do you think they went about fighting against the flesh? Well, 
first, let's just acknowledge that they did want to fight against it. Okay? They recognized that this was a problem. Uh, they were recipients of God's direct revelation. And so the Jews understood the reality of sin. And therefore, they did want to fight against it. The question is, how? How did they go about doing that? Well, take a wild guess. What do you think the Jews did to fight against the flesh? They followed the law. They saw the law as being the antidote to the flesh. If you do what the law says and you don't do what the law forbids, then you will have victory over the flesh. Now, was that true? Um, kinda, if I'm very generous, but no, no, that's not the case. For example, if you obey the command to never murder anyone, then yes, you will be successful in fighting against that desire of the flesh if you have ever desired to murder someone, and probably who hasn't. But regardless, you know, Jesus is going to come along later, and he's going to point out that it's more than just about whether or not you put a gun to someone's head and pulled the trigger. If you hate them in your heart, it's like you've murdered them there. The law went deeper than just the physical act, the, the thing that could be seen. Does that make sense? So, so they didn't seem to understand this. They, they don't get it. They seem to think that you could fight against the flesh by simply obeying the 613 commands found within the Old Testament law. So then, would it not follow in the Jewish mind that if you take away the law, you have taken away the, the means by which we fight against the flesh? Would, wouldn't that follow in their way of thinking? Yeah, that's exactly how they saw it. I mean, how will someone know that they are not supposed to murder if they don't have a law that tells them don't murder? And then if they don't have a law to obey, this, you know, don't murder, if they go out and murder someone, someone is, it, is it even sin? Right? I mean, that's a logical train of thought there. Um, if the law is the means by which we fight against the flesh and that law is taken away, what is going to stop people from going out and doing whatever it is that they want to do? That's the question in their minds that seems to be the concern, and maybe even more than a concern. It is possible uh, that this has actually happened here in the Galatian church. The, the way Paul words this here and the way he handles it, not just in these verses, but all the way through the end of chapter 5, at least opens the door to the possibility that there were some people within the Galatian church who were like, oh, there's no law? I can do what I want. I'll go out and live however I want then. You can't tell me when anything's right or wrong. I mean, because there's no law, so I can do what I want. Um, whether or not that's the case, I have no, no idea. If it was the case, then no doubt that gave the false teachers in Galatia a lot more ammunition because they could look at everybody else and say, do you want to go be like this guy? Do you want to be that kind of person who just goes out and sins flagrantly, lawlessly, lives in anarchy basically, basically in their personal lives? No, you, you shouldn't do this. This isn't right. You need to come live under law in order to fight against the flesh. Regardless of whether or not it had occurred or could just possibly occur, Paul doesn't want the Galatians to see or live out their freedom in this kind of way. And I would just point out to us that this is not a baseless concern on his part. It's not as if he's being paranoid here and he somehow, you know, he's making an issue that's not really an issue uh, for the Galatians. No, it, it, it is an issue because I've seen it in my own life, my own lifetime, that is, in my past. 
Uh, I remember the first time I, I really remember seeing it, it was about 12 to 15 years ago now, and it was with some of the guys that I went to Bible college and or seminary with, uh, that particular group. For many of them, they had come from backgrounds that I would um, describe to you as being uber conservative, okay? So they had churches that told them, you know, this is sin, this is not sin, this is right, this is wrong, this is how you're supposed to live, all kinds of standards and lists and rules, and, and this is what they had and what they lived in. And so uh, we'll talk more about that next week. But here they were now in Bible college and or seminary, and they're on their own for the first time in life, right? Stretching their wings, becoming their own people. I would just make, you know, the, I think, casual observation here that that's always kind of a, an interesting time in people's lives anyway, regardless of anything else that might be true about their life, right? It was becoming their own person and kind of experiencing independence and freedom. But for this group uh, that I'm referring to here specifically, not only were they going through that, but they were studying Scripture deeply for the first time. And they were finding that some of the things that they had been told were sinful really weren't. And they were angry. And they felt lied to by their pastors, churches, parents, other authority figures in their lives. And so when you mix uh, youthful foolishness with anger and resentment towards authority and a newfound understanding of Scripture, uh, that is not a recipe for a lot of good things right there, unfortunately. Um, and there's a joke somewhere that as people begin studying Scripture deeply, they should probably get locked up in a cage for a few years until they calm down. Okay, there's some truth in that comment, particularly amongst Bible college and seminary students. And what I saw happen in a few cases, and this is just an observation and opinion on my part, which may or may not be correct, so you can ignore this, but what I think I saw in a few cases was the very thing Paul is concerned about here. People seeing their freedom and all of a sudden, all of a sudden abandoning all other sense of almost right and wrong at points. Not across the board, but maybe in some specific cases. And I'm not saying they went out uh, with the intention of sinning. I'm just saying that I think over time, that that's where it led in a few of those cases. Of people letting their freedom become an opportunity for their flesh. Um, I've seen it in the past, and to say it bluntly, I've seen it here at Cornerstone over the years too. I've been here long enough now that I can say that and say it with some amount of, of confidence that it's a true comment, that I've seen it happen here. I've watched people, and again, this is just based on my own personal observations and opinions, which may or may not be correct, but I've watched people make choices for themselves and for their families, uh, which I have thought at best were unwise or at worst were just outright sinful. And the justifications for those things have sometimes been the freedom that we have in Christ. Well, there's no law against this. There's nothing that says I can't do that. The Bible doesn't call this sin, and I don't deny their comments most of the time, in fact, I can't think of a, an example to the contrary, most of the time they were right. They were 100% correct in their assessment. There was no law against it. There was nothing there that the scriptures would call sin. However, can I give you three responses to that mindset, three maybe checks that need to be placed in your own life as you pursue that way of thinking? These are all from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 10 where Paul seems to be dealing with and responding to a very similar mindset. 
of people who are pursuing things because they have the freedom to do so, regardless of whether or not it's good for them to do it, okay? So he gives them some checks. I'll give you three. All of them begin with a slogan that he seems to be using to caricaturize the, the position he's addressing here. And that slogan is, all things are lawful for me. In other words, I can do whatever I want. There's no law against it. Uh, so everything's lawful for me. Well, without denying that the law has uh, come to an end, Paul gives these responses. Here you go. First, all things may be lawful, but not all things are helpful. That's his first response. And that's from chapter 6, verse 12 of 1 Corinthians. Hey, look, I get you have the freedom to do all kinds of things. I don't deny that. But recognize that just because you have the freedom to do it doesn't mean it's good to do. Not everything's helpful. In fact, some things can hurt. And you say, well, that's a really broad statement. Could you maybe narrow that down for me? No, I can't because Paul didn't. And I think he probably didn't on purpose because there's too many contexts, too many situations, too many issues you could bring up. I have no idea where I would even begin to do this for you, but I guarantee you this, you can take any issue that you uh, want to think about in the realm of Christian freedom, and you can apply that and say, is it really helpful? Is it helping my testimony? Is it helping my life? Is it helping my family, my kids? Is, is it helping my character? Is it helping my walk? Is it, or is it hurting those things? Just because you have the freedom to do something doesn't mean you should so all things may be lawful, but folks, not all things are helpful. Second, he says all things may be lawful, but you shouldn't do anything that ends up dominating you. Again, that's from chapter 6, verse 12. And alcohol is the first and biggest example that comes to my mind here. I've watched a number of people over the years, particularly the ones who came from the background I described a moment ago with my college and seminary friends, who came from backgrounds where that was a big no-no, it's a sin, right? And they finally come to realize that they have freedom in Christ to drink. They do. I've said that before. There's no denying it. But unfortunately, though, they took it too far and it became too much a part of your life or their life. Here's a little litmus test for you. And this doesn't just apply to alcohol, by the way. You could apply this to any area whatsoever uh, to figure out whether or not you're being dominated by something. Give it up. And I mean today. Don't stop it right now. Whatever it is, Give it up purposefully for the next six months. If you can't do that, you may have a problem. Do you understand the point I'm making here? I'm not saying that it's sin. I'm not saying that it's wrong. But if you've got a freedom you're exercising in Christ that you can't walk away from now for some reason then that thing's begun to dominate you in a way that is not biblical or healthy, and you've got to deal with that. So if you can't stop it today and purposely, on your own, not because it's, it's not a moral issue, okay? Understand me here. It's not a right, wrong, sin issue here. If you just can't walk away from it today, give it up for the next six months purposely, you, you may have a problem. All things may be lawful, but nothing should be dominating you except the Spirit of God. And third, all things may be lawful, but not everything is edifying. That's chapter 10, verse 23. 
Now, Paul's actual wording there is builds up. That's what the word edify means. It means to build up. And in the context specifically, this is a spiritual idea in nature. In, nature. in other words, it's about making us more and more like the person of Jesus Christ. This is what we talk, mean when we talk about edifying. So is it, is it helping us grow in that way? Are your freedoms that you enjoy right now in Christ doing that? Are they causing you or helping you be more like Jesus, or are they in any sense hindering you from being more like Jesus? And again, I don't care what the issue is. It doesn't matter. Again, and you may have the real freedom to do it, but we're all different. And what you might be able to do that might help or at least not hinder your walk in Christ may not apply to me. And what I might be able to do in freedom and, and not hinder or sometimes even help my walk in it might not apply to you. So what are you doing and how are those things helping? Have you ever even stopped to think about that particular question? How is this action, how does this decision for myself or for my family cause us to be more Christ-like? Is there any sense in which it may be hindering us from being more Christ-like? And again, here's a little litmus test for you. It's not foolproof, but I just am trying to help a little bit. Think about the types of sins that you have struggled with over time and or think about the types of sins that the people you love most have struggled with over time. Is there any sense then in which the decisions you're making about those areas of freedom might be putting temptations before you or others in those areas? Now, it might take some thought on your part, maybe not for yourself, but maybe for your others. Hey, parents, you've got kids, and parents get to learn their children's uh, uh, sin natures pretty early on in life. I know my kids' struggles and temptations. I've watched it. I've watched it grow over time. So as a dad, one of the questions that constantly comes to my mind as we make decisions as a family about what we're going to do or not do is, what will this do to, to my son? What will this do to my daughter? Am I in any way going to do something that might stunt their spiritual growth here? And, and Okay, maybe in a very specific instance, I can't really apply that, but I think about it in patterns over time. Bigger picture decisions about things we're going to do or not do as a family. Am I taking my children's souls into account? What about my wife's soul? Am I taking that into account? I've lived with her for 16 years, known her for 20. I know her struggles now over time. Are the decisions I'm making as a husband putting her soul in danger in any way, putting stumbling blocks before her? I don't want to do that. I've got dear friends, same thing. I know things they struggle with because they shared them with me. Is there any sense in which what I'm going to do here is going to not build them up and might even tear them down? I don't want to do that. And so as you are also making those decisions and wrestling through those issues, that's what you need to be doing, stopping to think of whether or not you even should exercise that freedom in light of the soul of the person you're thinking about, whether it's yourself or others. All things may be lawful, but not everything is edifying. The antidote to giving into the flesh is not turning back to either the law or actually any law. There's a difference there, and again, we'll address that more next week. The antidote that Paul gives is, not surprisingly, the very thing that Jesus said would be the mark of true, genuine discipleship. It's love. Not in like a hallmarky, weird kind of way. I mean, 
Christ-like love. That, he says, is the antidote to walking in and living in the flesh. And so next week, Lord willing, we'll come back and look at that in more detail. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, this morning we just have opened up this passage and we're recognizing already that through all of our conversation and talk about freedom, there's a danger that's, that's kind of built into this. And the danger is not in freedom, the danger is in us and how our hearts treat it. Sometimes, Lord, we take the freedoms that we have in you and we go too far and we, 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 we move into directions that you never intended for us to go. And some even take that and allow the freedom we have in you to become an opportunity for the flesh. And this just should not be. But we know we're not, we're not immune to that. None of us are. No doubt every single one of us in this room have failed in this way, in this, in this uh, issue, some way, some form. Uh, Lord, I don't know what those things may be. I don't know what people are thinking through now and struggling with now. And when it comes to living out our freedom, I, yes, we may be free to do many things, but that doesn't mean we should. So there's so much here, Lord. I pray that you will give us clarity. All I've tried to do here is to just walk us through some, some responses, some checks that need to be in our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you will do that. Help us to be honest and assess where we're at and why we've made the decisions we've made and why we do the things we do. Not to, to simply limit our freedom as if there's some new law coming into place. No, that was never the point. But the point is to live out our lives in love. Love is the antidote here, not law. And as we live our lives in love, either towards our family, our friends, our neighbors, our fellow believers, we will see and I think understand or begin to understand how we should respond to the various freedoms that could be ours in you, but maybe just shouldn't be. So give us honesty, give us clarity, give us wisdom, we ask, and bring us back together next week to continue studying in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.